their business is successful when we produce outstanding wine that when you taste it, you can link back to the vineyard and understand the vineyard and the soil and the people and that we've got sort of a, a relationship with the people buying their wine and a real story and something that they hold on to tightly. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. Alright everybody, welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm joined today by Mike Saunders and Nick Gill from Greystone. I'm just going to go ahead and hand straight over to the boys to introduce themselves. Thanks Jono. Nick here, really excited to be on a on a podcast. Haven't done this before, um, and pretty stoked to be lucky enough to be selected to be an associate board member with the group. Um, really going to be look forward to meeting everyone that I've seen on the WhatsApp sort of channel for the last year or two, and um, be part of a movement and help with something that um, over time I've begun to really think it's part of our future as both farmers and a and the humans. Mm, mm, fantastic. And uh, and Mike, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners? Sure. So I'm um, yeah, Mike Saunders and, and company viticulturalist at Greystone. So we're um, 150 hectare, 180 hectare property in North Canterbury um, where we, we've got about 50 hectares of vineyard there. So um, I look after look after the vineyard um, and uh, well, two vineyards and and um, and oversee sort of the rest of the property, which we um, which we currently lease out to 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 the neighbour. So um, uh, yeah, so that's my, my background's been um, is, is in viticulture for the last last sort of twelve years, um, twelve yeah twelve years now, um, but but came off a, a small farm in Canterbury and and sort of got a bit of a farming background. Um, uh, so it's, it's, um, I think that there's, there's synergies between farming and viticulture that we, um, at, at Greystone, we're, we're really just now trying to understand and, um, and, and delve into further. So yeah, so that's, that's where we're, that's where we're heading at the moment. Awesome guys. Awesome. And yeah, Nick, I couldn't agree more. Um, for those of you wondering, uh, the other, so, so Nick is the new associate board member at Quorum Sense. He's just jumped on. Uh, with some other additions to the board uh, just in the last month. So I'm um, really excited about that new perspective and diversity of perspective that uh, that is going to come from that. So really excited to have you guys on the podcast today. And um, I want to start with, can you tell me guys, and, and this is just going to be a case of working out the, the, the flow of who answers what, and, and I'll just leave that up to you guys. And there's no, there's no way that that needs to look. But Tell me, guys, some of the challenges that you guys face up there in your environment as wine growers, and especially as organic wine growers. Um, yeah, well, we've certainly talked about that a lot, Mike, haven't we? Um, you know, when we started thinking about what are the next stages of yeah, growth as a wine company and what can we do better. And Mike, I still remember Mike saying, like, why do we weed? Why, why'd we kill all the weeds? And at the time I was like, oh, you're, you know, of course we know why we kill the weeds. And that started this conversation. And then he's like, actually, you know what? I haven't even weeded that block up there for the whole season. He just didn't do it. And um, when you start thinking about those 
underlying principles of regenerative agriculture and everything. And a lot of it relies on not cultivating, but if you're a certified organic like us, what do you do? So Mike, what do we do? <laughs> careful, careful neglect, I think is the, is the term, isn't it? Um, uh, Intentful look, neglect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, being being uh, organic, I think, um, uh, I think the number one challenge for me, and, and we talk a lot about this at, 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 um, on the Organic Wine Growers Board, is is the fact that no, no, very few, I should say, vineyards in New Zealand are set up specifically to be organic. They're all vineyards that were planted conventionally and then converted to organic. So we talk about this conversion process, um, and it's um, and it's all about. It's all about people always want to make that, want to fast track that. They want to make that easy. Um, and it's a three-year process and people are like, oh, can I do it faster? You know, um, and if you look at the process and you look at what you're asking those vines to do, um, it's not a fast process where you can't fast track it. You can't just pump them full of something and, and get them through it. You need to have, um, you know, you need to have a good water plan sort of. You need to be building resilience in your vines by, by, by pulling back in, in your water application. You need to... Look at your undervine. How how are you going to manage that? How are the vines going to respond to that? Um, got to remember that the vines are set up on on devigorating rootstocks because we've got such fertile land and, and farmland in New Zealand, and, and you know all vineyards are just vines planted on a farm, which is some of the best cropping land in, in the world. So of course they're going to do well. And um, so we devigorate them, and now we we introduce competition back into the system with undervine weeds and and and. Um, and we, we're trying to now boost those vines back up. Um, so I think the challenge is to is to get those vines balanced and get and understand the system that we want to grow them in. And I think the thing, you know, we, we've been growing vines in New Zealand for, well, for you know, some 40, 40, 40, 50 year old vines realistically commercially, but it's really only been the last 20, 25 years we've really nailed down what we want to do. And when you look at that and the scale of world viticulture production, we're people have been growing grapes and making wine for thousands of years. We've got so much to learn about the land that we're planting, planting these vines on and, and how and how it interacts. It's just, yeah, yeah, mind-blowing, really. How long have you guys been organic for and what drove the change? The, the vineyard was definitely established conventionally, but it's been interesting, actually, some of the reading that I've done um, over the last while is often you'll meet farmers that are running two mindsets. So they might have the farming operation and using herbicides and stuff. But if you look at their garden where they're growing food for themselves, it might be organic. I was one of, I was kind of one of those people. Like I was running the food farm at home organically, but Greystone was definitely set up um, originally with conventional techniques and, and herbicide and high analysis fertilizer and all the rest of it. But over a period of time, you start thinking more closely about what really makes great wine and working with the, the same guy, uh, air winemaker Don Maxwell, right from the very start, I think we sort of came upon the concept that the winemaker's job is to present the produce of the land or the wine that's come from the land with the, the least sort of noise applied to it. And we kind of came to the conclusion that the way we were running the vineyard at the time was just adding in all this noise, whether it's... Um, chemicals used for disease control or manipulating vigour with um, soluble fertiliser and all that sort of stuff. So we started thinking about it from that point of view and we very quickly became comfortable 
when we realised we'd just be throwing all the PPE out pretty much, the respirators and the overalls and withholding periods and all that sort of stuff. And when you've got a lot of people working in vines and they're working closely with them, you know, that was a really big step for us. We had full support of the, the owner. Um, and once we sort of thought closely about it, it seemed like a logical stage. So we started um, dropping her or chemicals out of the production system. I don't really remember, actually. I think it was about 2008. Um, and it was a really challenging vintage. And we had lots of disease pressure. Um, but we started... We didn't put any time frame pressures on ourselves. We didn't decide that we wanted to be certified organic by a certain date. We sort of grew into it, um, which is the way I tend to do things. Whereas Mike likes to just convert the whole thing all at once. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, always, always. Was it something that everyone was aligned on? You know, a big shift like that, and and I'm I'm you know I know there's more than you guys involved. You know, as a as an enterprise, how was this? transition received amongst the, the the members of the business overall i would say it was really positive but there was a couple of crew members that are just like geez you know it'd be easier if we just sprayed this or or whatever but you know they they eventually left and went off to work in other places i guess that more closely aligned with their values so that's they left on good terms and that's all you can ask yeah but it does it does come with challenges and when you look back you know so much like if you were to do it again I'd certainly know a lot more than what I did at the start but there's all these fine little details in the system about how high your irrigation wire is might work fine for using herbicide undervine strips and, and a machine harvester but then you just start hitting it with the undervine weeder and Mike's put lots of work into finishing really um, the conversion process of the vineyard I sort of got it started but it wasn't consolidated and that's what Mike and his team's been doing over the last three years. It's funny yeah like I think the conversion process um it was the first time like Nick and I attended a, a presentation a, well, a month or so ago and um I, I wholeheartedly um agree and, and believe in the our organic focus it's very inputs focused rather than outputs focused and um organic certification and I think I think you can go through the process and you and you can get certified um and i think there's a lot that you there's a lot that you have to do to, to achieve that um, and it's something to be really proud of but it's not this it's not the end point um and it's it's like the like nick just alluded to you you do you tick all those boxes and then you go well this doesn't work anymore because in an organic system we need to do this so you, yeah you end up spending a lot of time doing things like lifting irrigation wires and um figuring out what's going to work best for you and buying um buying new bits of kit that you use for two seasons and then realize that they fundamentally don't work with you in your system so then you you on sell them and go and ask the general manager for another bit of kit um but um i, I think the thing one of the biggest things for me with organics um and one of the biggest light bulb moments was was just realizing that nature does a lot of that work a lot of the work for us so um hawks bay I, I spent a lot of six years in hawks bay growing grapes up there and we we significantly leaf pluck um our, our fruiting zone so grape, grapes grow upright in those nice little neat little hedges that we we like to try and control and organize um and uh and we and all the fruit grows in a band along along a fruiting wire and if you take conveniently at sheep head height and if you take all the leaves off in that in that um fruiting zone 
you get um, you get all the sunlight and oxygen and, and air that, that that runs through that that fruit. And in terms of disease control, the two best natural fungicides on the market are, um, are, are air and sunlight. Um, and UV kills kills all those bugs, those fungi fungal um, bugs that we don't want. And and airflow helps dry out the fruit. So, you know, looking we did working in Hawke's Bay, did a lot of sheep leaf plucking and um, and, and opened that canopy up. And um, and yeah, that was that was kind of like the first point where I grew some riesling that was always always rotting, you know, and uh, on the vine. And all of a sudden we couldn't get it to rot. And it's just the sunlight and oxygen, really simple. Was doing was doing all the hard hard work for you, and that's not anything that's prescribed in an organic handbook, but it's part of your development of your management plan, I guess. Mm. Um, and and was that is that done by sheep? Like, can you talk us through that process? Yeah. So you um, uh, so sheep grape leaves are quite tasty, um, depending on on variety. So sheep will. Sheep love um, uh, Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay leaves. They're not so, not so, you know, um, such fans of Riesling. But you, um, you know, you, you find out what system works for you. And for us, uh, we use about two hundred, about two hundred um, ewes and and uh, hectare for about twenty four hours, um, and they'll just strip all the leaves off um, to to head height um, and uh, expose all the fruit and let, let there's sunlight and air in there. So. You want to know, and I guess this is where you, you, as a viticulturist, you need a bit of a farming background because you don't want to put some gnarly uh, old Perindales or Corridales in there because they'll start climbing up your trunks and eating, eating, eating everything in sight. Um, if you get a nice Romney, lazy old Romney in there, they'll just lift their head as high as they can, and they just like a, like almost eating a row of corn. They just, they just nibble off the whole along the fruiting zone, and they don't eat any of the fruit, and they just, just eat the leaves. So. That was going normal. to be my next question. Like they just don't touch the fruit. Yeah, yeah. So timing, timings, uh, like they got, can touch the fruit if things go wrong. But there's, yeah, we're learning about that. <laughs> yeah. So timing is really important. Um, so two, um, you don't want to go, you don't want to go uh, too early because you haven't got full growth on your shoots. So then they can just pull the shoots out of the wires and they can eat the whole shoots. And you don't want to go too late because sugar starts to accumulate in the berries and they start to get pretty tasty for them. And then you know you you obviously know little little tricks as well. Like I moved moved a mob down a row on, on in Hawke's Bay on a thirty five degree day and didn't have water in the paddock. And by the time they got in the paddock, the only moisture was was in the grape berries. And even though they're bitter and acidic, there was moisture in there. So we lost thirty percent of the crop in the space of about six hours before we realised that they were they were only only eating berries and not leaves. So you know you got to have water in 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 before you move them on and and not move them on really hot days. So there's little thing, little tricks that they're like, like that, but um, for us, that they're an integral part of, of our operation now. And, you know, we, we could buy a, um, uh, a double row um, leaf plucker machine for $50,000, um, or I could buy 500 lambs um, and, and, and throw them in the paddock and they'll do a better job. Like a, 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 a sheep here will get into the canopy and find every leaf in there, whereas the machine's just pushing on from the outside. So, um, yeah, they, they do a really good job, but they do come with their own risks. And I suppose also you're returning that back to the soil, aren't you, uh, uh, through the root or through the gut of the animal? Yeah, it, look, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, part of having, part of the, 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 one of the massive opportunities about being in North Canterbury is we've got this 180 hectare farm 
if only 50 hectares in vineyard and I look at look at all the grass and, and um, all the leaves and everything that we grow that we mow because we mow 10 times a year and it's and all we're doing is mowing that grass down and ensure, ensure that returns back in uh, eventually but but we've got all this feed here that we could be putting through an animal processing and then returning to the soil that way and it was you know you look at the farmer and he's, he's especially on a dry on a dry year and we've got these beautiful green paddocks and he's got sheep up on the hills and they're looking down at the vineyard going sure i'd love to get in there um and you can you can you can operate it so that you can fully integrate a farming operation into a vineyard but you just it takes a bit of farming knowledge and a bit of um a bit of viticulture knowledge and, and some timing yeah. So we're the next the next stage for us, Jono, is we're um, working on what would the vineyard system look like where we can put a sheet confidently into the vines at any time of year and know we're not going to get damage. Does that present the opportunity of replacing some mowings? Oh, well, we'd love to. That, if we could do that, that would take out all mowings, but we've been kicking ideas around for a while. Do you want to, you've got them in your head better than me, Mike, do you want to? recount what we've looked at for sheep and vineyards 365 yeah well i think i think the thing that we've been looking at is is we we know we have sheep in the vineyard from late november well to early december through until uh, early early to mid january we know we can confidently have sheep at the, in the vineyard in that period and they'll be and they'll leaf pluck and they'll they'll take us three weeks to get across the whole vineyard three to four weeks so we're, this has got a month long process there um and then post harvest so the end of april we graze all the vineyard all winter so we can confidently put sheep into the vineyard in winter from april to to pretty much now to bud burst um to, to september um so we've got that period where we can have sheep in the vineyard it's just those shoulder seasons either side that we wanted to be able to um incorporate sheep uh, in there as well because they also they'll take out uh, effectively take out every single mowing pass that we need to do and take out every single weeding pass that we need to do because all of a sudden you're not weeding under vine because your sheep are eating all your weeds. Um, yeah. And it also so takes that, out... that peak growth period, isn't it? That's when we want to be able to get them in there, that spring growth. Yeah, and it takes out our, our bud rubbing. So grape, grow, grape vines love to throw little suckers, water shoots from the base of the vine. And you'd normally um, pay a, a tourist um, uh, about eight, eight cents the, a vine to go and, and manually rub the, bo the bottom of every vine, whereas the sheep will just go through and, and, um, and, and eat those off. So it's all about using those sheep to do to, to take labour costs out of the vineyard um, and, and make things, you know, make things more um, uh, efficient, but also um, returning that, that, those goodies back to the soil. So, yeah, so it's about, it's about getting the sheep in the vineyard at the right time and moving them on. And I think when we looked at a regenerative system and looking at looking at some of how um, applying a, a, a broad acre grazing system to a vineyard, how you would do that, you, you're only returning some of the, some of the um, sort of research that we've looked at, you're only coming back to paddocks every, every 70 days, you know, or, or however long. So we can, that, that fits with the timing of the vineyard quite nicely. So we could, we can incorporate those sheep in. Um, so we looked at, um, we looked at having them in the vineyard for five days of the year. And then, we, well, actually we don't need to do that. They probably only need to come in at certain times, but those times still incorporate times and the vine itself is vulnerable to sheep. So we looked at whether or not we went for sheep avoidance and tried to keep the sheep away from the vines. Um, and that involved looking at things like um, electric wires around the canopy, 
Um, there's a company making um, sheep um, muzzles, which um, uh, don't don't sort of which tilt up when they put the head down, but come down when they put the head up, so they wouldn't be able to eat, eat the leaves. Didn't really fit too well with our sort of thinking, but um, uh, so so that was kind of sheep avoidance, or we or we went sheep deterrence, I should say, or you go to sheep avoidance, where you just take take the, the grapevine totally out of reach of the sheep, and then you you're just having a you've just got a grapevine, and the sheep can just be under the under the canopy all year round. So so you can um, just lift the the yeah, growing point so of the vine. Yeah, so we've retrained the vines. So we're, um, our cordon was generally about 700 millimetres um, and then the grape grows up to about 1.8. So you t- your shoots grow sort of 1,100 millimetres every year. Um, and what we're attempting to do now is we've retrained that vine up so that the cordon height is, is at 1.8 uh, and then the, the canopy is going to, to train downwards rather than upwards. Um, and uh, and it, it will eventually reach sheep height. They'll be able to, to reach it, but that'll be the growing tips that we're happy for them to just just nibble off. So um, effectively, it'll mean that we can keep sheep in the vineyard. We can put sheep in the vineyard confidently every you know any time of the year. This is the goal. Um, and by lifting, there's a few other benefits there too. Like by lifting the cordon up, um, we're really vulnerable frost-wise in spring. Um, but you get a 0.1 of a degree for every 100 millimetres in height that you increase. So if we increase our cordon height by, um, you know, 1100 millimetres, we're, we're getting a degree, an extra degree of frost protection. Um, and also taking the cells out of that humidity zone. So fungi, fungal spores and disease spores like to grow in high humidity environments, but by lifting it up away from weeds, then we're, you know, we're, we're decreasing humidity. So there's, yeah, the more we looked at it, the more we sort of thought, well, that's, that's sort of a, the, I think that the best thing for us was to trial lifting that cord on up and see how that runs. So that's where we've got to at the moment with the. With so the so that's um that block's about one and a half hectares, Mike. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the guys are setting up a trial block, Jono. Um, which when you first look at it, it's really easy to look at it and go, "Oh my god!" And all I can see is all the things that won't work or will be a problem. But um, you know, it's, it's just about having a crack at it and working out and the winemakers really on board with it too, which is great because like winemakers quite often like to see what's positioning, which is canopy that you see where it's very, very neat and it's very, very vertical and very, very trimmed. This is not going to look like that. So this uh, stuff is quite like would you say it's pretty radical, like like as far as traditional uh, tra- vit- compared to traditional kiwi it is I, I don't know like maybe somebody it kind of reminds me i don't know anything about kiwi fruit but it's kind of you know it's a bit like kiwi fruit it's almost overhead mm. there's um if you look at into places like spain like the spanish do, do a lot they, they run a pergola system like kiwi fruit and um it's so hot over there that they have their vines at 1.8 meters and and they grow them on a kiwi fruit trellis and all the grapes just hang down underneath it and are shaded because they don't need the sun mm. it's, it's, they don't get the fungal disease we have and they grow all their vegetables underneath because um it's too hot for their vegetables to be grown in open sunny open paddock so they they have all their vegetables growing underneath and their vines growing up so uh it's, it's, it's definitely definitely done that's that's a full pergola system closed over top but you look at things like um uh you know um sprawling vines in, in australia nick and and um uh there's a bunch of different training structures worldwide where where vines are 
um, are not are not neatly hedged and pruned and um, and, and typically it's typically it is in vineyards which are not as mechanically driven so you, you're not you're not looking to mechanize every um, uh, every, you know, everything that you do um, and for us that's what we we're looking at we're not we're trying to almost reduce mechanization which reduces our, our diesel usage reduces our, our, um, our compaction levels and reduces um, you know our carbon footprint um, and replace those machinery passes with sheep which you know, you know is going is going to be um, help helping with our carbon carbon cycling and, and, and nutrient cycling and um, and improving our environmental impact reducing it so and and like I gather that uh, you know, there are many passes through the season up the vines and the use of, of machinery, what I'm hearing is like a lot of it is to do with, and, and correct me if I'm on, not on the right track, but like a, a, a preconceived picture of what things should look like. Like mm. I, you know, when you've got, when you guys first, uh, when we started this, this interview, uh, you know, Nick, you mentioned about uh, the the area that that Mike didn't weed, and, yeah. and then Mike, uh, you know, didn't weed it, and and nothing really happened. <laughs> nothing happened. This guy didn't fall on your head or anything. But um, you know, it's we sometimes look at vines and go like, you're looking at a vine where its trunk's as big as your 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 leg, and it's like you just know that's the dominant life force in that row, and. You know, all the weeds are scrambling around underneath it, trying to get a toehold. This vines, that's owning the place. You know, that doesn't need constant weeding. It doesn't mean that it's right for young vines, though. So it's having that intimate sort of knowledge and interpreting what's right for that block and that vine and that row. I think as well as as well as that, like with the, the whole weeding thing for us was um, trialing some new technology there as well, for so that the current setup with with irrigation in vineyards is you you've got above ground drip line, which you know waters the weeds first and foremost, and then that water's got to go push past through that 150 millimetres of roots before it gets even gets to the vine roots. So there's a there's a big movement back, and it's not new technology subsurface irrigation, but um, there's a movement back to it now. And we've got a couple of blocks that we're trialling where we've subsurfaced um, our irrigation about 300 millimetres down, so it's beyond those those weed roots, um, and it's accessing putting water straight to the vine roots. And we're seeing a total change in composition um, of, uh, of of undervine species. So those big broad leaves, um, that that weeds that used to be there just aren't there anymore. And you end up with the you know with the grassland system unless you're unless you're um, you know you're cover cropping and introducing new species above ground. So so we've trialled some subsurface irrigation to 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 change that species mix um, and uh, and to feed the vines rather than feed feed the weeds. So um yeah that's that's again just challenging that that conventional vineyard setup i guess the narrative yeah, yeah. and and one would think too that would promote rooting depth Ab absolutely and these you know our clay soils um uh you know they, they hold a lot of moisture um but they take a lot of wetting so you know we would um again conventional um, viticultural irrigation is to get around you you know sh short short watering cycles and often um, but we're we're watering um, at the most once a week, uh, but we'll water for six or eight hours at a time. So we'll get water driving down deep into the soil profile, um, and the, and it's encouraging those roots to go deeper, um, be more resilient, and and um, you know and fend for themselves. So, um, and we you know we saw that last year. One of the other tri trials, 
uh, that Nick in inverted commas that Nick doesn't know about was um, <laughs> we we had two or three blocks last year that we just didn't water, you know, and um, and dry farmed and uh, and it's uh, I think I did eventually tell Nick. Nick's um, got yeah, his camera yeah. off. We can't see the facial expression. <laughs> um, and you know the, those those blocks. Um, uh, in all honesty, yeah, the yield were, were yield compromised because of it. So they did they didn't yield as well. But my God, the fruit quality was amazing. Uh, and we've we've been watering up until then. We've been watering every week, you know, to, to to keep them pumping all year. And here they are; they're doing just fine without us applying all, all this all this extra moisture. So, it's again saving saving water, changing the narrative, and 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 just I guess just taking the blinkers off and just not not um, not yeah not doing what everything that you you should be doing because that's what you've been told to do. Or what you've always done. It's probably um, a good point there to just acknowledge that, like Greystone, we're vertically integrated, so we grow the grapes, make the wine, sell the wine. Yeah. And our business is successful when we produce outstanding wine that when you taste it, you can link back to the vineyard and understand the vineyard and the soil and the people. Um, and that we've got. Um, sort of a, a relationship with the people buying their wine and a real story and something that they hold on to too tightly. We're not, um, we're, we're not growers, so we're not paid per tonne. So we're able to manipulate things like yields and so forth, providing we get amazing quality that our winemaker can take and you can taste. Um, and that's sort of how our business model works, which is different to other people as well. Mm. Yeah, I get it. And Tell us a bit about the wines that you do have. Like, what what different wines do you guys produce? Well, yeah, we've got um, seven different varieties, but the, the wine that really is a unique selling point or a, a special wine is the Vineyard Ferment that we're fermenting in the vineyard. So back when I was talking a little bit about our conversion to organics and we decided with the winemaker that really our mission in life was to put a wine in the bottle that spoke of the vineyard without any additional sort of confusion. He decided, Dom decided that by taking the grapes into the winery, we know there's commercial yeast in the winery because we make wine for other people and some of those yeasts are quite aggressive. So he decided that although we were doing what's called wild ferments with their Pinot Noir, where we're not putting commercial yeast in it, that might be getting commercial yeast sort of contamination from the, from the winery. So in 2000 and 11, we did our first one where we picked um, our favourite block of Pinot Noir and just left it in the vineyard with no temperature control, no no anything really. And we just left it there in the vineyard to ferment out in the open, which is quite crazy. And uh, we've been doing that ever since. And every wine is just an amazing reflection, not just of the block, but of the season, because one of the things we didn't realise at the time is when you take that temperature control away, when it's a hot season, the ferment goes really fast. When it's slow, when it's cool, it goes really slow. And that sort of weaves the seasonal temperatures into the winemaking process and produces these vastly different wines. And Dom was presenting the wine at um, this, uh, one of the biggest Pinot Noir conferences in the world and a really well-renowned um, wine reviewer said, oh my God, you know, what are you doing with this wine? And Dom's like, oh, we're just putting it in the estate. We'd be putting it in at Greystone Pinot for, from the start. And um, so we started bottling it separately. So it's called the Vineyard Ferment. 
and it's a it's a it's pretty much a world first, Mike, isn't it? No one's doing it like that. Yeah, it is. It is, and I think um, funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I did the same thing. Presented um, presented the wine at our, our, our um, New Zealand annual viticultural conference, and six hundred people. And they go. Um, the first question was, you know, how do you how do you control temperature? And we're like, we don't. <laughs> or how do you control um, how do you control what you know you use? And you're like, well, we don't. And oh, well, how do you control the length of ferment? You're like, well, well, you don't. And it's like you had to sort of stop the questioning and kind of go, look, you've got to get wrap your heads around this, this, the, 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 the idea that you have no control. Winemakers, viticulturalists, we love, we love control. We love, we love things being nice and tidy and straight. And, and so what you're seeing is, is, is a lack of control, but also an extension of that seasonal influence uh, on the wine. And, uh, and again, it's just a challenging that, those preconceived uh, notions. So... Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, um, a, a world first, and, and it's um, you know there's a few people in New Zealand doing it now, but not but not necessarily bottling them uh, and, and labelling it. So it's been really great. We've got um, support from Callaghan Innovation to study it, so we've had a three year project done on it, and um, since DNA analysis changed, you know, ten or fifteen years ago to look at the different populations of wild yeast, you basically had to plate them, grow them, and look at them under a microscope. Whereas now with technology, you can do it really fast and um, so we've done quite a lot of study on that, and the wine's always half to one degree alcohol lower than the other wines that are fermented in the winery. So quite these yeasts that we have in the vineyard are quite inefficient at converting sugar to alcohol, which is great because we don't really want huge bakes of alcohol. We want flavour. Um, so, yeah, we've sort of been doing it for a while, and now we've got research coming through to show what it is that we've done, which is quite interesting. And it becomes a challenge, doesn't it? Like when... You know, I love how um, what Mike said about sort of letting go of that control. And uh, doing that, we get not only massive complexity that I can hear really comes through in the in the wine, but also makes it a real challenge to pull apart. You know, when when those people that are attached to the to the figures, you know, give me the figures, give me the, you know, like those those questions that you received, Mike, and it's like, well, you know, one year it can be da 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 da, but then the next year it can be nothing like that. Yeah, um, vintage 2012 was like the coolest summer. I grew up in South Australia, you know, it was quite hot. And vintage 2012, I don't think we ever hit 30 degrees. And it was just so cold and the ferment took, I think, 12 days to start. Whereas in a hot season like 2015, it might be it might be started and finished in three to five days and it's done. And the wine style is completely different, but it's, um, it's just letting go of that need for control and trusting it must be was it scary like the first time you and if it's slow it's like come on we were terrified you know we didn't um we didn't do anything to it but we just measure the hell out of it (laughs) every day you're like measuring it's like oh it's still not doing anything but you know it was terrifying we've got the confidence now we've never had a bad one never had a bad one i think if if nothing else it gives you plenty, plenty to talk about you know, like yeah. plenty, plenty of plenty of reasons why the wine is a certain way. I think in a in a world that's awash with wines that are made the same way every year and have a have a wine have a personal influence or personal stamp on them, it's nice to put in uh, put nature's stamp on the wine and say the wine is the wine because that's how nature made it. Not a human stamp. Yeah, and that's and that's quite a cool. That's quite cool. You know, uh, takes a bit of um, ego out of it. Like for Dom, like I mean. 
um, viticulture, we love to have a little dig at winemakers, eh, viticulturalists, but for Dom to, you know, is an ego thing to to say the wine's just made by nature, like that's, it's, he's got nothing to do with it. I think Dom's on the only, you know, was one of very few winemakers who would take that really well, and, and it, and it is, it's nature, it, it's it's a full extension of nature making that, that wine. So if you come to, if you come to Greystone in April, you'll see fermenters dotted throughout the vineyard, and they're fermenting, converting the sugar to alcohol and carbon dioxide. When that process is finished, then they're taken back to the winery, pressed and put in a barrel. But that ferment's all completed in the vineyard. So that's literally the process. Yeah, yes, yeah, so we pick the gra- we pick the grapes into buckets. They're all hand picked, straight into it, tipped into what's called the stemmer over the top of the fermenter, and it just knocks the, the berries off the bunches, and then we walk away. We come back every day and play with it a bit. We, we don't even use any tools. The guys just push the cap down by hand to keep the cap wet, but no additions and just let it do its thing. Tend to put, tend to put a lid on it if it's going to rain because you don't really want 10 mils of, of rainwater in, in, in the fermenter. But, um, but yeah, but apart from that, no, just, just leave it to do its thing. That is incredible. And so what other, you know, like we talked a bit before about the story, you know, we're talking about sheep and different uh, managements of the vines, height, etc. And now talking about fermentation, you know, what else really is unique about Greystone? What's what and, and, and in particular, like, what do you think the, the consumers are, you know, what, what are they looking for in a wine now? I, think, like I get I that it's not always, you know, and and I have to say it too, it's not always on alcohol percentage, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, in, in farming in general, you know, as things become more localized, as things uh, become more unique, it's clear to me as someone that is on the ground observing this, that people are actually interested in the story. You know, what's mm-hmm. actually stand, when they consume a product, it's more than taste, it's more than price it's more than you know the traditional uh parameters you look at they, they want to get a sense like an emotion behind uh mm. what they're contributing to and what they're actually purchasing i think for me the um the big thing and, and this is why we're we're, we're expanding out into the sheep um into the sheep project in the vineyard is um uh, is 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 exactly that that story that we want to tell. We want people to buy into into Greystone and, and feel part of that that um, that story there. And, and we're lucky enough to have this um, resource, this farm that. Um, and I go back to this sort of light bulb moment for me, where you look at all this vineyard area in New Zealand, and it's all planted on farmland. And there's no reason you cannot still farm that land. Um, and, and I firmly believe that viticulturalists and need to need wine growers need to realise that they are just farmers at, at, at heart. So for me, farming that land and telling that story, and it's not just a customer coming to Greystone and getting an amazing bottle of wine, but getting an amazing bottle of wine. And by the way, here's your lamb, organic lamb shoulder that's, that's come off the property that we've grown and um, take home this jar of honey that we've grown from the, from the scrub block out the back. Um, uh, and, um, and you can, you know, do, do, do rosemary honey, um, you know, uh, over top of your lamb. Uh, and then um, if you want to, you know, if you want to uh, an entree for that, um, potentially in time, we've got some ducks up in the vineyard now, maybe here's some, you know, here's a couple of duck 
confit duck legs to take home and and you can have duck beforehand and then into your lamb with your greystone wine and and that's the that's the whole story so I think, um, and just and not just having them as part, are nice to have, having them as part of the of the story. So, ducks for us, um, we've got a problem block where where we have lots of of grass grubs and and um, and bronze beetle and 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 they, they attack the vines um, at, at key stages. So we're, we're using ducks to um, to hopefully grub, you know grub grub out those beetles and and, and help us control that. So they're part of the farm and, and they're going to be part of the story hopefully uh, in the future as well. So we've only got four, we had five peakings up there. We had um, the North Canterbury Panther got one, one of our peaking ducks. Um, uh, found, found him the other day, the dog chased after him. I was a little bit worried that this cat was a bit bigger than the dog. Um, so I had to so call the dog back, but yeah, lost, lost the peaking there, but hopefully we'll, we'll expand the peaking um, duck um, flock out. Um, and then even down to things like you know we, we've just built built our pig pen and and, and we'll be we're getting some pigs in to, to feed the scraps from the cellar door. So all the you know all the food waste from the cellar door will go go to the pigs and and um, you know and we'll just close that loop up a little bit and and and, um, and, and that's all part of that story. If you want to come and you know come to Greystone do a tasting, have lunch, and then see where all your scraps go to, you can go and you know. Pat, Pat, Betty, and, and Boris out in the in the in the in the pig pen. So, um, I, th I think story is super important. And um, but I think I think doing whatever we do, you want it. We want to do it well, and we want to do it with a quality focus because that's what um, that's the model that that works for our business. I think we're, we're definitely not pumping out quantity and and all about um, low price and and and. and you know, fighting, fighting to, to hit the bottom. We, we're pumping out. We're making really unique, good quality wine, and we want to partner that with some some good produce. And neither needs to come at a cost for others. You know that they're, they're all symbiotic. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting. Um, really agree with what Mike's saying there. And yeah, you, know, you hear a lot about food about nutrient density like I, I think our wine is sort of the wine version of of high density food like high, high nutrient density but we've got probably roughly 35 percent of their wine is consumed in new zealand and the rest is exported australia is a really big market for us but so is china and other countries like um finland and denmark and sweden they're just so into organic um organic new zealand wine but they also want to know how do you grow it and they, they want evidence and they want a story. Um, this is not commodity trading. This is selling wine to really highly engaged consumers that want a special experience that they can taste the wine and understand the story and maybe visit one day or they have visited and they'll always remember it. And that's just so important to us. Tell me, guys, what else have you guys got um, You know, going and or in the pipeline? Um, what else is sort of because I know you guys are really innovative, and through Mike's continual trials, he's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. learning a lot. So what else is what else are you guys discovering and 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 considering? We're um, I think I think going jumping back to a question you had earlier, Jono, around tractor passes. Like we we identified pretty early on, and um, 
And for those who aren't familiar, vineyards, obviously, with, with all the rows in a vineyard, you've got about, we have about, um, we have four kilometres of row metres per hectare of, of, of planted grapes. So if we go out and mow uh, a 50 hectare vineyard, we're, we're driving 200 kilometres, you know, every time we, we pass through that vineyard. So um, four litres of diesel an hour, it's about, two, about 200 litres of diesel per, per pass. So um, between spraying, trimming, mowing and weeding, we, we, we drive those 200 kilometres about 30 times a year. So if we can, if we can, if you think of the compaction and the diesel usage, if we can, if we can decrease that, that's, that's going to really lessen our impact on the environment. So um, integrating sheep um, was, was the key thing. And then um, secondly, providing something for them to eat. So really looking at expanding, uh, we just bought a Duncan uh, uh, vineyard cedars. So we're going to expand, um, expand out um, into some cover cropping. Um, and we've got some, um, uh, some lo lovely seed provided by a, um, by a local company, Symbiosis. Um, so I've got a 15, 16 seed mix ready to go on the ground for a bunch, um, uh, bunch of different blocks there. So that's twofold. So, so obviously feed um, for, for stock, but also um, in terms of soil improvement. So we um, we frost protect with with, um, with sprinklers, overhead sprinklers. So in a night we can put on upwards of fifty mils of, of water. Um, and if we get back to back frost, all of a sudden you, you're spending a lot of time on on anaerobic waterlogged soils. So we need to we need something that's going to soak up that moisture um, and help aerate our soil uh, and improve our soil. So we've got some yes, so a really diverse seed seed mix here that's going to hopefully drive down and soak up a lot of that moisture. And provide um, some some feed for stock. So, so that's one of the big projects at the moment is getting getting that underway. So we've got the got the drill now, got the seed, and hopefully we need a just need a couple of good days to get some get get some seed in the ground and uh, and get that struck and just work on the timing of when we do that. So um, uh, I I um, offered to to sow fifty hectares this year of vineyard of, of fifty hectares, but again that was that was the that was the voice of reason there. So I think we've got about ten hectares going in um, with with some cover crop this year. So that's that's um, that's pretty exciting. And that's um, this process. You know, we we've sowed cover crops before for various reasons, but we no longer have you know a termination option with herbicide. So it's like okay, we've got a rotary hoe, we can scalp it. Pulverize it. There won't be any weeds left, but then that's cultivation. So, what is the balance we're trying to find here between getting a good seed strike and getting a return on the money we've spent with that seed, not cultivating any more than we need to, um, and getting the soil conditions right? Well, we don't have the answer for that yet, so we'll be trying different techniques and seeing what works best. But it's going to be there's going to be a little bit of compromise needed there, I think. What's it like? Uh you know, being innovative and being, you know, I would term it as being out there on the skinny branches, you know, like there's a there's a sense of vulnerability with with this form of innovation. Um, what's that like with, because you've got, you know, I, I know both of you guys reasonably well, you know, Mike's the, the out there, you know, let's do the whole lot. And then you've got Nick, who's, you know, a bit more conservative. Um, What's the relationship like, guys, in this in this quite vulnerable place of, of leadership um, professionally? What's the how's that that relationship look? Oh, it's a total partnership, eh, between the management team. The whole management team's on board with this this push, um, and sometimes when we're talking about, 
when we're talking about stuff, you just got to go, this is going to take, we're going to talk about this for an hour because we don't know what the answer is. And you got to make the time to really flesh out whether it's pros and cons or different ideas. And it's been really nice getting um, some exposure to the quorum since, particularly the WhatsApp group, because I can't remember if I said it to you, John, or I said it to someone, like back in when I was doing viticulture and I was in Penfolds, probably one of the best, well, best known Australian brands, there wasn't an option to fail. Like if you didn't have weed control under the vines, you'd be giving a warning, you know, like that they had to look a certain way. Whereas you just get that sort of idea that if you try a few different things, not all of them are going to work, but that's okay. And we're so stuck in um, different production systems that we're working as a team, and I guess supporting each other just to try different stuff. And because the whole company's sort of up for the challenge, it works really well. But another part of it is um, being able to tell the story. So as a successful wine company, we're really good storytellers as well. Um, so that's part of it as well. It's just like we've tried these things and um, maybe, I don't know, maybe we're going to drop 10% of our yield going through this, but if it means that we've got better water infiltration and we don't need to irrigate anymore, the wine's amazing. I don't, I don't care. I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. So it's integrating all those things together into sort of a whole business approach. I guess, Mike, what do you think? Um, I wrote something down just before as, as you're talking. I, I think um, I think the great thing about innovation is if you keep innovating um, and you keep doing things differently, you've always got an excuse if you fail, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is quite nice. It's like, and also if you've got a terrible memory like me, then it's okay because you keep forgetting what you've done. But um, but you know, innovating and then failing or or not getting the outcome that you desire. Um, there's only a problem if you fail to learn from it. So if you don't take the learnings from it um, and move on, then um, then there's no point in, in innovating in the first place. I, I've got no, I'm under no illusions whatsoever that everything that we that we're doing is is going to is going to work. Um, but I I do know that we can't keep uh, treating our soil um, the way the way that we are. Um, and uh, and so for us, like we we talked about. Going, going zero tillage and, and going away from cultivation. We know cultivation is bad. So in a, in a binary decision, cultivation is bad. Let's not cultivate. So um, that's, and morally you've made that choice. Philosophically, I guess you've made that choice. And so you go down that path and it's like, it's like the old school pick a path box, you know, the story box. And you go down that path until that path doesn't suit you anymore uh, and, or until you get some better information and then, and then you follow another path. Um, and I think for us, that's, that's, well, that's where we're at at the moment. Um, and I, I and I think I, get, I keep going back to this blinkers thing and I, and I think it's cause I don't know, I, I don't, whenever I don't know something, I, I always pretend, um, I always pretend with, with Nick, like a, it's some great big light bulb moment of mine. So I'll take him into the paddock and go, why are we weeding? And it's cause I don't actually know why we're weeding. Um, but, but it's, like it's, oh, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. It's a good way. It's a good way to ask. It's a good way to ask a challenge and to ask the question. And if you're not, if you're not constantly questioning yourself and what you're doing and why you're doing it, um, and if there's a better way of doing it or a different way of doing it, then then what are you doing? And you just, I guess, you just have to get really used to planning, changing, 
developing, innovating, and then going again if it doesn't work, uh, and not being not being afraid of that project. God knows how many things I've said to Nick that we need to do, and I think we've probably only done twenty percent of them. And the rest yeah. of it, we might still do at some stage, but it's there's still things that that we've I've planned for, I've costed, I've put a proposal in place, and and, and you know we might not have done it, but um, you know it's still it's still there to do if if we you know when the time's right. Yeah, and and it leaves you in a really like what I can hear is you're never stuck with anything, like not mm. like not like some sort of you know ignorant naivety, but like um. But like, you know, because we know natural systems, natural ecosystems are dynamic and always changing. And what I can hear is your management is the same. Yeah. You know, like there was an old saying that, um, you know, to to remain rigid and and to be opposed to change is to uh, be against nature. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, and I think, I mean, it's all very good to say. It's okay to innovate because if you fail, you've got an excuse. But um, it, it's the only way you can keep doing that is if you've got the support behind you to do it. And that's for me. That's knowing that uh, if I fail or when I fail, when I fail, um, Nick will go, "Oh, that's cool. So what have you learned and what are we going to do differently?" Um, and we've got Peter above Nick, who, who um, you know, the, the owner, and, and, and we've got Peter's backing as well. So um you know that, that is why we're doing like one or two hectare trials instead of just whole <laughs> <laughs> the whole vineyard yeah yeah so no so that you can't yeah you can't do it you can't innovate without without that backing um but also without careful planning as well i think one of the one of the things i'm kind of expecting is there's every there's not going to be a solution that applies across the vineyard like you know you've got older vines, young vines, different varieties, north-facing aspects, steep slopes, flat, heavy soils, lighter soils, all these things. And it really comes down to working intensely with this one block, like you're consulting with a being and developing a solution that works for them, but it won't be the solution you apply to the next being. Yeah, it's a real-time observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. On a personal note, you know, you, what's it like being, you know, like coming home, you, you've been out there and you've, it's, it's sort of what I can hear is it's, what I'm hearing is, you know, traditionally, and, and I can relate to this from my agricultural background, but like it, it sounds to me like viticulture, uh, you know, wine growing traditionally is very prescriptive and it's quite, you just sort of follow a procedure and, oh, and totally yeah and, you can do it off the calendar that's why you, you yeah you can yeah but you guys aren't doing that and and it, but you have in the past how has that transition been personally like you uh, you're actually you know creating your own path like not just for the business but like personally is do you get like a sense of satisfaction out of that or I, I do. I think I think there's a there's a there's a constant state of of, of anxiety at times when you're constantly changing. And you're like, is what I'm doing right? And it, cause yeah. it is in a different. in a good week is awesome, eh? And in a bad, in a tough week, it's like, oh. Just... So I, when when things come off, it's it's great. And, and when and when they don't, um, then yeah, that that can that can be pretty tough. But um, 
I think, I don't know. I think, I think recently, um, uh, personally, you spend a lot of time thinking about work and at work. And I think the lucky thing for me, and I get a lot of stick from friends and family about working too much. Um, it's, it's, like any farmer, you love the land that, that you're on and and that you're farming. And I get so much I get so much enjoyment out of out of being there and seeing the change that we're making and seeing the things start to the plans start to fall into place. And I and I think you've got to recently just been trying to focus on being grateful for 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 seeing those changes and seeing the, the that change happening and seeing the benefit to the to the farm um, and focusing less on that focusing less on the time that it takes to, to achieve that so um i think that's just making an excuse to work more but but <laughs> but, but um oh, yeah i don't know i don't know i'm not too worried about that it's, it's good it's yeah it's good fun anyway yeah like if you look at what does regenerative practices look like in a certified organic vineyard there's not a lot of hits on your on your google bar you know like there's there's some good storytelling particularly from some vineyards in California and so forth, and they'll have sheep in the vineyard, but, you know, having sheep in the vineyard in winter is not very difficult. Um, but it also comes down into, you know, how you how you fit all the pieces together and even, like, what's regenerative winemaking? Once we turn the grapes into wine, what is regenerative winemaking? I asked the winemaker the other day and we decided we, we have no idea what regenerative winemaking is at the moment. Um, so it's exciting and scary to be able to stand on the edge and think there's nothing out there like where's this path going to go yeah i guess you know a lot of other industries are following you know you look at nz merino and uh you know patagonia um there's a lot of big brands that are you know silver fern farms uh, that are moving towards this regenerative branding how long until we see regenerative wine well, watch your space, I guess. I think I read the other day, like the potato, the potato industries really like, you know, some of their major customers want to know what their regenerative practices are. So I think it's also, I, I just don't want to, I don't want to, you know, we, we're not using herbicides anymore. And so we got rid of them, but we replaced them with cultivation. And then we realized cultivation's doing all these other things. So we've made a commitment in their minds to move on from there. So we're, we're committed. We're just not quite sure where the path goes at the moment. That's it. And we can apply, we can apply so much of regenerative agriculture as, as we understand it with, you know, is, is to deal with, with grazing systems in, in farming and, and, um, and it's how you apply that terminology to viticulture if you're not integrating grazing systems in, into your vineyard. So I think that's the first step for us down this regenerative viticulture process is is to incorporate a um, grazing system into the into the vineyard, livestock into the into the onto the farm, and uh, and cover cropping to to increase our soil um, biology and increase our soil health, um, uh, and, um, and and also you know looking looking forward further than that and down into a carbon um, usage and and sequestration and. Um, we just started the process. We've signed up with with Toitu, um, to to go down our, our carbon zero journey, and and um, uh, and, and the farm's going to play an, an integral role in that. You know, um, the sooner we can get some clear guidance on 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 carbon sequestration in the soils, um, uh, the the better, because you know we, we know what we're doing is improving 
will improve our soil uh, health and and our ability to, to store carbon. Um, but also, what what can, what else can the farm do for us in terms of um, trees? And we've got a shrub block out the back, which is part of limestone creek, which is really steep that will will, will convert into some form of native forestry or or pine. We we're not we've got to go down that journey as well. So. Um, I think that's the that's one of the next big steps um, for us going going forward. I've gone totally off topic. What was the question? No, you haven't. It was it was perfect. And and with that, guys, like, what's it been? We've talked about the customer, but what about the industry? How is are these techniques being accepted and embraced, or how has the response been on a larger you know industry um, perspective? Do you find it easy to talk about or like just tell us what what that's like i think there's a lot of interest in it i was at a um a workshop at lincoln a few months ago that murph did um about you know weed ecology and that sort of stuff and chatting to viticulturalists actually not just viticulturalists also row crop growers like kiwi fruit and that sort of stuff all really super aware of region but yeah high awareness low low sort of doing it at the moment i think we're not quite sure how to do it. So do people want Mike, to see Mike, some... Mike's on the Organic Wines New Zealand. You, you must talk about it. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's widely accepted at, at organic wine growers level. And I think um, uh, we, we're lucky enough to have, have Jono come and speak at, at our, um, our, our organic wine symposium. And, and it was, um, you know, the, some of the guys like Bart Arnst and, and Marlborough have been, you know, Bart, what, what was the date on Bart's cover crop thing? 1992? He's been doing this a long time. He's been he's been cover cropping and building soil um, for for a long time. He really has, and and it's um, in a vineyards um, environment, and it's uh, so in the organic space, it, it's commonplace. It's, it's common practice, you know, composting and and um, uh, and, and cover cropping and, and, and improving your soil structure and biology is, 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 is commonplace. In conventional, I think it's becoming more and more, uh, in conventional viticulture, I think it's becoming, uh, they know it's coming and, and New Zealand wine growers are, 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 you know, uh, are spending a lot of money in investigating in, um, regenerative viticulture and, and where, where it's going to. I think- Yeah, and also market awareness, hey, they've done some work on market awareness, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the challenge for them is when you're when you're growing conventional Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough, um, uh, it's a very different growing system to what we to what we have, um, and uh, and I think it's going to take them a bit more time to figure out how how to incorporate it in, into their system. But and also there's, there's a lot more if you've got a, a, a board above you and you're and you're driving um you know commercial Sauvignon Blanc production any change in that um is you know takes a lot of time to push through whereas we're lucky enough to be able to push through an, a no weed trial and a sheep 365 <laughs> trial um without without telling my general manager but um uh but um I think it's going to take a bit of time for the rest of the industry to to, ju to jump on board and, and and accept it but um it's coming yeah, one, I reckon one of the big like organic viticulture loves cultivation. Mm. When you when you go when you go organic in viticulture, you throw your herbicide out and you get all this really fancy cultivation equipment from Germany or Italy and it steers around the plants and it weeds the soil. And it's like cool man, like instead of knocking down the vine row with Roundup or Buster or whatever it was, I'm using this blade or this disc or whatever. Then you go, I don't want to disturb the soil anymore and smash it all up and 
know, I'm going to stop doing that. That's when it really gets challenging. So we've got a sort of a weed whacker type arrangement that we're using now as well, like so that we're not cultivating the soil. But that's the big challenge for organic viticulture is you take cultivation away and then watch them start to panic. And that sort of leads perfectly, guys, into uh, my final question. And I'll ask this for each of you individually. What would be uh, a few words of support or uh, as much as I resist the word advice, but we'll go with that for the sake of the question, for anyone who is perhaps in a, in a position of, um, you know, just discovering that there's other ways beyond the prescription, um, they're hearing some talk about it, you know, in the media, but perhaps don't uh, know where to start. What, what would each of you have to say to someone in that position? Um, well, for, for me, it was, you, you think about it for a long time and you, you start hearing about it and listening and thinking, you, you just got to start something. And I think we've all got projects or things we'd like to do. You just need some momentum to do one of them. The one that you think you can get done, do that one. Just do do one. doesn't have to be the whole lot. Hey, Mike. You can just do a little one. <laughs> you can do a big one if you want to, but a little one counts. Do that. Sit back and go. I've done it. What What did I achieve? Have some learnings from it, and you just. It's like pushing a marble down down a slope. You know, it gathers momentum, but you got to you got to get it started. You just got to move the ball a little bit, and then you'll get started. So start with anything, something that's achievable, something you want to do, and and be be prepared for a journey because it's not you're not going to get it done by the end of 2021 and put a kick on the calendar because you did it like that's just not going to happen the marble might not go straight down the hill either no and it might disappear for a while and go into a bit of a gully somewhere and it pops out where you wasn't expecting it but that's okay you know beautiful what about you mr saunders yeah look i mean that's just said it all just just start just do just do something don't end Obviously, my my ethos is don't necessarily wait for approval to do it because I think it's I think it's, I think it's really easy to go oh they'll never go for that or um, the, the board will never do that or or, or the boss will never will never let me do that just just start and just bombard them with um, with proposals with things that you have done <laughs> that's you know? that's Nick, that's what Nick does yeah because <laughs> so, sooner or later they're going to have to say yes to something you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, you could, you could say, look, you can, you can say pick the low cost and the high value things and do them first and all that sort of thing, but just do something, um, and, and just do not be afraid of it because, um, the, you know, the, the earth is, is a remarkable, um, uh, and vines so a remarkable ability to, to, to change and adapt. They change and adapt much faster than we do. So if you do something and it changes the environment, it doesn't work, then they'll come back in a different, you know, they'll come back again. So um, don't be afraid just to just to, just to give it a go and start, hey? Mike and Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Quorum Sense podcast today. Nick, I look forward to seeing you around the corridors. And Mike, hopefully uh, it won't be too long and I'll be up there seeing all this all this cool new stuff you'll be growing and there'll be sheep everywhere and pigs and... <laughs> And, we'll have, and maybe you can put on a, you know, maybe we can do some tastings or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> We'd love to have you back. Yeah, Thanks awesome. so much, gentlemen. Mm -hmm.
This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.